I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. So the theme of this is the exploration of identity who we are, who we think we are, who we take ourselves to be. And understanding identity is a central, maybe the central part, piece of the Buddha's teachings of liberation. A teacher once asked me if you had to sum up all the teachings in one sentence what would it be? And it was that, like just knowing when we're identified with experience, really seeing it as I, me, my, and when we're not, and just really knowing the difference. So, you know, as we grow up from childhood, we grow into a sense of separate self. You know, we individuate. This is necessary. It's not a mistake. The problem is we forget 
that we're part of something bigger, that we are something bigger, actually. And um, it would be okay even, you know, to stay with a sense of separate self if we didn't cling to it to the point where there's not really the spaciousness to understand more. Dolly Parton said, uh, find out who you are and do it on purpose. And I like this quote. I feel like in some way it's about our practice to really discover who we are and then be intentional about how we express that and serve life. And before talking about the inner focus and process of our sitting and walking meditation practice, um, I just want to understand and name and appreciate the matrix of identity that we're creating here together as we practice. It's, it's like what Will was saying last night when he was talking about refuge and sangha in the community here. And and also all those who made it possible for us to be here. And this refuge, I mean, this has been our one of the three refuges since the time of the Buddha. It's been central. In fact, Thich Nhat Hanh says that the next Buddha will be the Sangha, will be the community. This matrix of awakening that we are establishing and exploring and creating together. And what does that mean? You know, it really means that we, as we cultivate our ability to shift the focus and identity just with our individual practice, we become more aware of this web of life that we all share. And recently, I heard a TED Talk by... um, Suzanne, I don't really know how to pronounce her last name, Samard, she's a professor of forestry at the University of British Columbia. And some of you might be aware of her work on what is called the Wood Wide Web. Have you heard of this? It's different, not the world you have. Some of you have. The Wood Wide Web. It's fantastic. All this new scientific research is showing that plants and trees communicate with each other in ways that we just didn't understand or know before. And the ways that they communicate with each other and are together actually foster qualities that we as a community want to foster diversity, community, health, adaptability, resilience, and equanimity, stability. And the way that this happens, she sort of discovered it by accident. She tells the story in her TED Talk. Her dog was digging up, I don't know, somewhere near the outhouse as dogs love smells and was digging and and she saw something she hadn't seen before, but what it turned out to be is part of this network of fungi 
And this is how mushrooms appear too from this same network. Uh, and the network of fungi, are, they're these little threads and they're so narrow, they're so tiny, they're like narrower than an eyelash. They're so tiny that like in one square meter, there's something like seven kilometers of them. And they're actually little tubes, teeny weeny little like, like tubes. And the tree roots, they, they get so tiny that they can communicate with the hairs of the tree roots on a cellular level. And what they do is the fungi absorb minerals from the soil that the trees actually don't know how to make. And so the trees uh, nourish themselves with the minerals from these little fungi. And the trees, through photosynthesis, their carbon can be sugar, which the fungi can't. They don't know how to make that in their little thready bodies. So they absorb the sugar from the trees. So, okay, that's symbiosis. We have other examples of that in life. So, but it's, here's the amazing thing. They talk to each other. Like when a tree, let's say, is attacked by a bark beetle and weakened, the other trees through this network send that tree extra nourishment. And when the trees, it's same thing, they help the mushrooms if there's not enough moisture and they help each other and they know. For example, um, they did an experiment that shows they knew that the trees, the big trees nurture the little trees. They send them nourishment and help them grow and that the little trees actually wouldn't be able to thrive and survive the way they do without the big trees. But I don't know how they did this, but they devised an experiment to try and see if the trees recognize their babies as opposed to other trees' babies and fed them any differently, and they do. They feed their babies more. They'll help the other babies if they need help, but they feed their babies first, and they know them. They also found out that the trees, you know, they drop nuts, which will become the seeds for future trees, the babies, and if there are, um, and of course then creatures come and eat the nuts, squirrels and wild boar and other creatures that eat nuts, and if the creatures are really thriving and eating lots and lots of nuts, the trees withhold them for two years. They just stop. They drop a few, but not very many until the animals begin their population dwindles and it's safe. And then they drop all these nuts. So there's wisdom in the forest. And um, as she says, it awakens us to the possibility that nature's most gentle creatures, forest trees and plants, are sentient beings highly evolved at the community level. 
course, indigenous cultures have always known this. It's just another example of scientific evidence proving what um, ancient people have known about um, the intelligence, the sentience of the forests. And we can learn from the forests as communities. I was reading about this in one one person who was writing it said, it seems like the forest is a giant commune with everybody helping each other, but we don't want um, conservatives to find this out because they might burn it down. Um, I, I know it wasn't that funny, but um, anyway, it's just, I love this because I feel that this happens with us in different ways, that we send each other energy and support and here we're in silence together, a community in silence together. It happens in wordless ways. Um, so this feeling of um, intelligence, I think it was Elisa was talking about mindfulness as this kind of intelligence and, and sentience. Um, here we are surrounded with these beautiful trees and plants, being so close to nature. I feel like they're supporting, modeling, showing us a way to be together here. And we can experience this web in our own breath. We interbreathe. We're breathing not just each other's breath, but we're breathing the breath of our ancestors. We're breathing molecules that dinosaurs breathed, that the Buddha and his community breathed, that um, we're sharing air with all creatures, really, and with all those who came before us, all those who are currently in existence, and this breath will flow into all the future beings, too. It's kind of a comforting thought, you know, if you don't have... um, Uh, too much stuff to leave to your descendants. You leave them your um, molecules of breath. So as our mindfulness begins to um, strengthen here, as we quiet down and start to focus, just arriving here and being with the breath and the body, uh, as Spring invited us to do this morning in her beautiful meditation, we start to feel how the breath is breathing us. Like it's the bridge between our conscious and unconscious activity, our voluntary and involuntary activity. Um, We don't have to do it. It does us. And this is being aware of this One way that I like to practice and be aware of this is by doing what uh, the 13th century Zen master Dogen Zenji called taking the backward step. And you can do it physically with your body. I mean, you can do it right now if you just like, just for a moment, close your eyes and sit the way you're sitting, just as you are, and feel what it's like to sit here like this and then Move your body back just an inch, half an inch, 
and then see how it feels right now. There's a subtle relaxation. You can start to witness, observe, and receive the moment. Instead of leaning forward and trying to, you know, grab it. You can open your eyes. Dogen says um, that the self moves out, you know, advances to the myriad things, the 10,000 things, just all the things um, that we experience, that it happens this way, which is our usual way. This is called delusion. And, I mean, we call it delusion, but essentially it's just a function of how we go out and relate to things, naming them, relating to them as things outside of ourselves, um, separate from ourselves, and, you know, separate entities, other uh, out there objects. And that's how our self advances out into the world. And when we're mindful of that, it's not a mistake. It's actually part of how we do our life. We have to be able to do that, uh, to be mindful of things. But the other kind of mindfulness is stepping back, taking that backward step into the inwardness that Leela spoke about last night. That backward step into mindful awareness. And, and this is what this, then Dogen calls this, um, when the myriad things, when we're in that receptive state and our experiences, 10,000, you know, joys, sorrows, everything we experience, sounds, thoughts, feelings, sensations, everything. When these things, when we just allow them to appear and disappear, this is called awakening. This is how we realize our own being. We don't realize it's separate from what's the content of our awareness. That's the content of our awakening the content of our awareness, this moment, what we're seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling. So both of these have a place in our life. One's called delusion and one's called awakening. So one sounds wrong and one sounds right, but, but they both have a place. And, and we really need them both. And these, but these are shifts in identity. They're shifts in how we are aware of our life. And, and sometimes, sometimes we need this other aspect of ourselves, and it's the one we don't usually get to cultivate, and that's why we come on retreat. We need the stepping back, the slowing down, the receiving, and that's what we get to do here. And that shift of identity, um, I have a friend named Marian Solomon. She's like this just ultimate couples therapist. She's written lots of books, and her new book has this great title. She calls it From the Culture of Me to the Wonder of We. Now, she's talking about couples, but it could be our whole community, our wood wide web of being here together. It's just really including not just the human world, but this whole vast world of life, a wider, deeper world of experience that we 
little by little begin to touch to and retreat, just more spacious and vast. So now I want to just offer you some simple, practical ways to connect with your body and breath and work with this um, while you're sitting and walking. Um, And it's not just while we're sitting and walking. You know, it could be our eating. It can be, hopefully, becomes more and more continuous throughout the day. Eating meditation, our falling asleep, our waking up. As Will was saying, all those in-between moments. Um, But how do we do it? Because often, especially the first day, the mind can be very scattered. I have felt that today. And, And the body can be kind of restless or achy. And maybe you've felt that. And so we're just learning step by step, breath by breath, how to be here, how to be present here. And um, so I want to offer you some ways that can help. So the first way, um, as we experience just as we experience everything, as we begin to be present for more and more of our experience, we start to see patterns as our body and breath anchors us more and more to being here. We start to see groups and ways that we, I mean, you can notice it right away, just patterns of how we react to things. And even if we can't stay with them and explore them, it's not necessary. Just to be mindful and to use mindfulness as our rudder and our reference point so we're not evaluating our success or failure as meditators by this pretty crude measure of whether or not we can concentrate. But we're looking at, we're just starting to see the scope of who how, how things happen in us, how we perceive life and how one thing leads to another. The fancy Buddhist word is dependent origination. We start to see this and it's not always good news. Usually when we see a pattern, it's like suddenly we see it all over our life and it can be a little sickening or daunting um, But just to see it is good news. And it may not be enough to change things right away, but we do know this, that that which is outside of our awareness has power over us. Why? Because we're not aware of it. So it can drive our behavior and be in charge of us in ways that um, are sometimes painful. Another way is when we're practicing with the breath to really notice the beginning of a breath, like the birth of a breath. This is how we study actually the birth and death of experience. The beginning of a breath, the length of that breath, its little life, it has its being, then it passes away and vanishes. Everything's like this. We are like this. Seeing how it's born and how it lives and how it passes away and then how 
Each breath is replaced by another one. It's amazing. We can discover so much truth of life just with the breath. The Buddha said in this fathom-long body, just this body of ours, you can see the whole truth of the Dharma because it's true of sensations too. Like, I can't remember who said today, somebody was saying, it's like not scratching an itch and seeing what happens. You know, an itch is born. It itches. And if we don't scratch it, what happens? Yeah, eventually it goes away. A third way of staying present is noticing the little pauses between the breaths. And this can be, it can be harder to do, but you can actually, you can sort of fabricate it, do it on purpose. We don't usually try to control or regulate the flow of the breath in our kind of meditation, unlike pranayama or yoga meditation. You try to lengthen the exhalation. We're just letting the breath flow in its own natural rhythm and seeing how it is. But it's easier maybe at the end of the out-breath to see this. Following that breath, you know, from the beginning of the out-breath all the way and then to the end where it just dissolves into space, there's a little bit of pause. And in that pause is stillness. It's also usually where thoughts are born, right at the end of the out-breath. So that's another reason to keep an eye on it. Um, and same thing, you know, in that moment of pause, we don't usually notice it. Sometimes you can catch it, sometimes you can't. But when you can, and you sense that moment of stillness, and that pause between the breaths, it's very encouraging. Because often it's the only little fraction of stillness we have, especially the first day of retreat. I don't know why it's maybe easier to feel it at the end of the out-breath. Maybe it's because intuitively our body knows that our life ends with an out-breath, that last breath, and then there isn't another one. So noticing that pause between the breaths, and the fourth one, it, it actually, the best way to tell you about it, I think, is through a Zen story about a Zen master named Zwigan. Now, he was a Zen master. That meant he's practiced many years, um, you know, like Tija, he just devoted his life to it, really made it, um, made it his life. And for most of us, 10 days of practice, you know, it's very awesome. You can tell your friends, they go, ah, 10 days of silence, that's amazing. But um, Suikon, he wasn't necessarily in silence all the time, but this was his life, practicing intensely. Maybe five or six hours a day of sitting and walking and then doing very, very mindful work practice, work meditation in the monastery. And this is how he practiced. I love this um, practice because he would call out to himself like this. He would say, um, Trudy, and then answer, yes. Like he sort of divided himself into two, right? Call and response. 
So then he'd ask himself, um, are you here? And he'd answer, yeah, yeah, I'm here. And then he'd give himself a little piece, like a little dharmat, a little dharma advice. And he'd say, don't be deceived by others. Now, we were with him until he said that, right? What did he mean by that? And that's the koan part. This is where the mind stops. Oops, that doesn't make sense. What is he talking about? And when he says, don't be deceived by others, he's referring to the way that we identify with experience. We make it other and we make it an object out there. And then we relate to it. He's saying, just what, just see what occurs in your consciousness as that. It's an appearance in your consciousness. That's all. And this is just what we do. You know, suffering moves through us and we make it mine, my suffering. It's a story about me, the ways that I've failed, the ways that I've been disappointed or disappointed somebody else. We make it a story about me. And it's the same thing with love. Love moves through us. But we fixate and call it mine. Love arises maybe in the context of somebody that you love or something you love to do. Love for me arises a lot in the context of being with Jack. Imagine that. <laughs> but it's so easy then to make it be somehow it's only about that. And if God forbid Jack isn't there, where's the love? Did he take it with him? Did I lose it? No, it's flowing through us, but we fixate it. So this is what Zygon, I think, is talking about. We can all understand it in our different ways. He's talking about making a story, you know, something solid and real and making it fixated and solid in a story. And like, I must be a creep because I'm having these kinds of thoughts, um, whatever it is. And so he would just call out when he would get caught in thinking whatever he was thinking about himself and making that be a story about who he is. And, and he would just stop and say, Trudy, uh-huh. Are you here? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Don't be deceived by others. Are you awake? And if you definitely are, and we are in that moment when we call out to ourselves, um, don't make experience into something that's else, other, more, better, different, separate, distant. See how close we can come to the experience that we're having. This is what's called intimate practice. Just getting really close. And that was Wigan's way of practicing. And we can do this too. We can call out to ourselves and remind ourselves, like a little mindfulness bell, we can remind ourselves and we can answer ourselves. Um, and this actually leads into the next one, uh, which is, this is some advice from the Buddha. He often talked about crossing the flood. And 
this metaphor of crossing the flood, he wasn't talking about a beautiful, quiet, peaceful river. He was talking about this torrent of experience that arises in our hearts and that we've all felt today, you know, just like this fire hose of thinking. And, and I don't really probably have to tell you what the flood is at this point. You've had enough time to experience it for yourself. And it's just the flood of everything, all our feelings, everything, and difficulties and the things we get stuck on. And so he talked about, he said, how do we cross this flood? This was a koan. This was a question that he asked his community. How do we find our way through this stream of uncontrollable experience? How do we do that? And he said, the way that we do that is without hurrying and without lingering. He says, if you hurry to try to get to the other side, you just get exhausted. You're going to wear yourself out. And besides, uh, there's not really any other side to get to. I mean, it's not anywhere else, but here. That's um, really what I was trying to say. And then he says, but if you linger, you're going to sink. What happens if you just, <laughs> I don't know, lie there in the water? Well, if you're on your back, you can float. But you usually sink. You just get flooded. And, and we do this. We just, this is, you know, we really, we rush. We get tired. We try hard. We get exhausted. Then we give up. We just float away. <laughs> We're not even here. We sink into our thoughts and fantasies. Um, it's just what happens. And so he's saying, don't hurry. Don't linger. And, um, and this really, I heard Tija teach about this in Qigong once. Um, he was talking about when, when you're practicing and there's a point where you just like your arms start to feel really, really heavy. And they're tired and your elbows are kind of dropping. And, and it's the same thing. Usually when we're in a state like that, we either just blah, drop it or we force it with strength, right? We either sink or we just try to hurry. You know, we're going to get through this. Um, and then he talked about this middle way, like when your arms feel like that, instead of trying to muscle, you know, strength, instead of trying to work with it through strength, he said, try working with it through softness. It's so counterintuitive, but try working with softness and then just see how it kind of lifts and how it just buoys the whole gesture. And somehow that way of practicing just reminds me of this, of just crossing the flood and how there is a middle way that we can do this. And how with our very breath and our very bodies, when we can relax and just let our experience appear 
have its being, disappear, fall away, something else arises, oh, appears, has its being, vanishes. And when we begin to see this sort of, um, this changing nature of experience, this flow, it's very freeing because it's not over here, it's not tomorrow. When I was in retreats um, for years, when I would be in a retreat, I would spend a lot of time fantasizing about my next retreat, what I was going to do in the next retreat, and how the next retreat was going to be. I don't, you know, the mind, it just loves to be somewhere else. And, but the more we see this sort of kaleidoscopic changing way of life and how that life can flow through us, in us, as us. Life in the form of these words, life in the form of these sounds, life in the form of you and me. We're starting to be the tree that's in the forest of life. We're starting to really tune into that web of this community, each other, here, which is just a kind of microcosm of out there, but we're just usually moving too fast and we're going out toward experience all the time. Um, It's so great to have this chance, even though it doesn't always feel so great, especially at the beginning. My um, Soto Zen teacher, Koben Chino Roshi, used to say, you know, you'd be in this intense retreat, like here, kind of suffering and having a hard time. And it would be the end of the day, like now, and you're tired, kind of fantasizing about that moment when you lie down in bed. Ah, <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> and the talk is still going on. And, <laughs> and there's another sitting after it. In fact, there's a walking and then a sitting and, you know, forget about there's no sitting or walking. It's just moment, moment, moment. It's very solid and real in the mind and it's exhausting. And so you're at that point at, toward the end of the day and he would say, we're the lucky ones. And I think, It was so helpful to be reminded that we have the leisure to come and do this. So many, the vast majority of human beings are getting up in the morning and working so hard. There's no chance to stop and really do anything else. Working so hard just to be able to eat. Um, When I was traveling in China on a Zen pilgrimage with my teacher and a group, oh gosh, maybe 35 years ago, a long time ago, 30 years ago. It was when China had first opened up around 1985 and everybody was still wearing blue pajamas and riding bicycles. It's not like that anymore. 
you know, we were traveling and visiting people and just going to temples. And I remember outside of uh, the Third Ancestors Temple, there were people doing construction. And in those days, they were doing construction, you know, like putting dirt in buckets, you know, just very manually by hand. And the people, some of the people who were digging, like they were digging with their hands. They didn't have shovels or anything like that. Um, And I remember this woman, we were very lucky that somebody in our group was fluent in Chinese. So we didn't have to only rely on the government um, interpreter who traveled with us and of course could change things that might be said. And I was talking to her through my friend who spoke John, who spoke Chinese, and she was just talking about her life. It's just constantly this work. And she showed me her hands. And the um, she didn't have hardly any fingernails left. Like the tips of her fingers were sort of worn down from digging um, in the dirt. And it was just such a vivid reminder of, yes, we're the lucky ones that we get to have the leisure to be neurotic, that we get to have the privilege of feeling like we're going insane. And uh, no, seriously, you know, and of course, as we, I promise you, if this is your first retreat, as the days go by, the one thing I can promise is you will begin to feel more sane. Little by little, you will begin to feel more sane. Um, In two weeks, I'm going to go, uh, I was invited to teach mindfulness just through a series of sort of events that linked together in a way that just made me feel like this is the thing that I'm supposed to do. Um, to go teach mindfulness in a Darfuri refugee camp called Goza Mer in Eastern Chad. Eastern Chad is right smack in the heart of Africa. Uh, it's to the east is Sudan, and we'll be going to the, this area near um, Western Sudan, which near Darfur. We've forgotten all about Darfur, but the war is still going on. It's still really violent and terrible so that the people in the camps can't go home. Some of them have lived there for 13 years. And it's a really difficult situation because the area is very, very dry. It's called the Sahel and it's arid and there's not much timber. There's no timber, actually. There's like... and little for livestock to eat. So the influx of these refugees into Chad, where it was a very fragile ecosystem that could barely sustain the people that were already there, is creating lots of tension and the government isn't giving the people enough food. It's a really difficult situation. And and this small team of people that I know uh, from LA are doing beautiful work there. It's radical work. It's unusual. It shouldn't be radical. It should be normal, but it isn't. 
they went and asked the refugees, what do you want? What do you need? They said they wanted soccer and preschools to take care of the little kids who were getting, um, who needed care. So I'm going to be going there, and there isn't enough food, not even for the, we're a small team, four of us. Um, there isn't enough food, so we have to bring every morsel of food that we intend to eat during the time that we're there. And it's just making me again realize our life here, what we have. And it's not to feel guilty or bad for all that we have. I wish it for everybody. But it's just to help us keep in perspective, especially at the beginning of retreat when it can just, you know, we bring everything that everything that was tormenting us before we came into retreat gets amplified in the silence of being here together. So it's important to remember, like we really are the lucky ones. It is so, um, it's so auspicious. It's so fortunate to not only be living here in this country, but to be in this retreat to meet the Dharma, to meet these teachings that can help us feel the oneness of our life and the forest, the uh, wood-wide web of being that we are, that we are, that we are together. And together, we're creating a serene and beautiful field of loving awareness, of mindfulness as loving awareness, a kind of tenderness that comes from appreciating our life and our blessing and from gratitude. So I want to close with a quote um, that I got from Leela. It's a joy meditation from an 18th century Sri Lankan text. And I think it's good to close the first sometimes weary, it can be a bit of a slog, the first day. It isn't always. For me, the first day is like when I'm in retreat, it's just like, ah, peace. But then the second day, everything comes in. But yeah. Uh, so this is, this is uh, what I want to share with you that Leela shared with me. It's a joy meditation that goes like this. How wonderful you are in your being. I'm glad that you are here. I take joy in your good fortune. May it continue. If we weren't in silence, I would have you say it to each other. And when I do that in my sitting groups at home, people say it to somebody they don't even know. So wonderful. How wonderful you are in your being. I'm so glad you're here. And even though people know that the person doesn't even know them, they say it feels so good to hear that. It does. It just brings some, it uplifts and brings some joy. So how wonderful we are in our being. 
how glad we are to be here. May we take joy in our good fortune. And may it continue. So, let's sit for a moment. How wonderful we are in our being. How glad to be here. May we take joy in this good fortune. And may this joy, this appreciation, continue. Thank you, everybody.